Hello and welcome to another episode of the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm here with Daniel Hogan uh, and back in York, uh, one of our favourite events to go to at the courtyard was this thing called Time Warp, <laughs> where um, each, <laughs> each hour, um, the song, obviously, the Time Warp from um, Rocky Horror Picture Show like, would come on and then they'd start playing the music from another decade and the decades would go on all night, so like you sort of were being transported through time. And these things got a bit wild, understandably. And uh, there was once where the bouncer uh, tried to kick me, Dan and I out because we were trying to lift up a sofa <laughs> in the middle of the bar. And I cannot remember for life me why it was, but shout out to Sam Lindley if he's listening because he was there as well and he's a legend. Just want to point out, no one was sat on the sofa. So I, d- I don't see too many health and safety like... We took the cushions off and everything. Yeah, we did. We were really, you know, safe about it. But I think we were just really in the spirit of the of the evening, weren't we, Ben? So yeah, I don't know. Maybe we were just uh, we were just seeing how far we could throw it. Nothing harmful. <laughs> how far we could throw the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> right. I am here with Ben Maloney, my brilliant, wonderful friend, who is not only a fantastic musician, a keen cook, but also now an experienced kind of scary storyteller because your voice has been used for kind of audiobooks as such read and scary stories there haven't it Ben? it has yeah, I've, I've narrated um sort of horror story i mean I, i've had some good reviews as well that video had some nice comments apparently people like my voice for um for creepy stuff <laughs> is that a good thing <laughs> i don't think that's a good thing dan <laughs> well, I, I, I think we'll keep that in the edit then i think we'll keep that there. <laughs> one of my piano students dad's told me that my voice uh, sounded like his um the voice on the yoga app that he uses he told me that oh, i was so really you, relaxing and therapeutic relaxing. so that's what my voice sounds like and then your voice is used for scary stories for horror so i wonder what that says about the two of us i, I quite like it I, I i really enjoy doing it actually i think I'm, i'll do some more i just need to get around to it but yeah. it's... Today we are honoured to be joined by Harvey Davies, who's um, a pianist, harpsichordist, sort of general keyboard specialist um, at the Royal Northern College of Music. So there he's a fellow in historical performance, coaches chamber music and also an accompanist. Uh, He's one of the founders of the Playel Ensemble, who um, have recently been recording uh, lots and lots of chamber music by Arnold Cook, who was... um, an English composer that uh, hasn't received much attention. So Harvey's been doing some some world premieres um, there. And also he's a member of Manchester Baroque as a continual player as well. So uh, very varied, varied talents. But thank you for joining us today, Harvey. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Been looking forward to it. So today our, our topic is lockdown, which I thought was a very clever suggestion <laughs> from Harvey. <laughs> So I'm intrigued to hear what he's come up with. Well, it seemed to me that the um, that those two words, or is it one word? Who knows? Depends how you spell it, hyphenated, don't hyphenate it, um, offered lots and lots of potential in the world of music. Um, there are lots of different ways, perhaps, that human beings can be locked down. And um, uh, from the obvious, like being stuck in jail, um, to being... Uh, to suffering from something called lockdown syndrome, um, which is an appallingly upsetting um, condition where where um, 
the person suffering it has uh, suffering from it has uh, uh, doesn't appear to be able to express themselves vocally or through any means of normal communication can't move and so on and so forth um, uh, or uh, none of my pieces reflect that particular condition you may be pleased to know um, <laughs> however where I thought we'd start is perhaps one of the most obvious lockdowns and I wonder if you guys might have come up with this as well um, I thought it would be um, totally cool to talk about uh, one of the most famous examples of music ever written when its composer was incarcerated Olivier Messiaen um, the great French composer was a prisoner of war in the Nazis Stalag 8A um, a prisoner of war camp in Görlitz uh, which is in the present-day Silesia on the border of Germany and Poland and he was there in 1941 um, 1940 and uh, he his experience led him to write this extreme piece of music um, extreme for its length as much as its beauty and its power um, and it was premiered in the camp on the 15th of June 19, uh, 15th of January I should say in 1941 and its name is of course the quartet for the end of time it was an absolutely freezing evening um, when the 5,000 people who listened to the premiere of it 5,000 think about that listening to a chamber work my goodness me uh, there's only me I thought who got that sort of numbers at my concerts <laughs> when it was premiered by the Jewish clarinetist Henri Akoka the violinist uh, Jean Le Boulier and uh, the cellist Etienne Pasquier and met with Messiaen himself at the piano um, and he famously said of it afterwards but although he was apparently prone to a little exaggeration um, Messiaen this is he said afterwards that um, nobody has ever listened to his music so well whether they were in rapt yeah. attention or just completely frozen solid we may never know <laughs> but um, but anyway that's how it was but what a piece this is in eight movements and lasting for about an hour in length. Messiaen explores his one of his favourite musical themes, that of timelessness, in the sense of music which exists in a dimension outside human experience, which is normally bounded by the passage of time. Eternity. It's a tricky concept. And it's one which Messiaen returned to again and again in the context of the nature of the mysteries of God as understood in Catholic theology. Messiaen felt very strongly that it was God's will that he was a prisoner uh, in, this, in this camp. And that, that, so there is a dual positivity in his attitude and his approach to writing this music therefore. Because despite the awful conditions, he looked at his imprisonment as having a reason, something from which he could learn as a human being. And secondly, his entire life um, could be viewed as a positive imprisonment at the mercy, at the mercy of God. His deep faith um, led to a constant interrogation of the nature of God as presented to us by Christianity. And this mystical approach to life and his own entire existence shaped the music he composed. The quartet was eight movements long, and at its centre are the two movements in praise of Christ, each for just two of the four players cello and piano, and then to finish the entire piece, violin and piano. So I've chosen to play some of the, uh, of the last movement, the violin movement, the Louange à la l'immortalité uh, de Jésus. And um, 
uh, louanges in praise so of the, the the eternal nature the immortality of christ and the two players are asked to play almost impossibly slowly with a quaver speed of about 36 beats per minute <laughs> at least messiaen has the grace to put circa 36 leaving plenty <laughs> of room for it Right, exactly, exactly. Lots of leeway. And indeed, if you look at the recordings that are available, there is quite some leeway taken, in fact. It's fabulously challenging to maintain. And virtually everybody tends to speed up, including myself in this. I've had the privilege of playing this piece on a number of occasions, and uh, it's an amazing challenge, really. And the constant rhythm of the piano feels like a slow heartbeat whilst the violin soars above in a seemingly endless tune, sort of reflecting the physical immortality of Christ, as well as his spiritual immortality. incredible music oh, isn't it beautiful yeah i mean the concept the whole concept is is so radical in so many ways i i think i, I don't know about you guys i mean this attempt to represent the infinite um the eternal mm. when it's the one thing that human beings simply aren't and can't do mm. <laughs> wonderful yeah. what a, what an aspiration i mean what a genius of a man because he, he pretty much gets there really doesn't he <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think that would just be effective on anybody who who was to listen to it as well. Yeah. One of the most haunting things I've ever heard was that movement actually played um, on the on the Martineau with piano. It's just. I mean, it's it's such a haunting but beautiful sound, and it, it works beautifully well, actually. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let's hear something different. Well, lockdown. I mean, made me think of the English composer Matthew Locke. <laughs> um, 17th, 17th century composer, of course, 
um, was born about 1621 um, and died. We know when he died. He died in um, uh, August of 1677. Mm. Um, so he was 50, 56 years old, something like that, 55, 56. Oh, that's a bit alarming. That's about my age. And, um, yeah, he was born in the southwest in, <laughs> in, in uh, Exeter and, uh, and started his sort of musical career as a chorister at Exeter Cathedral and um, again a, a little bit of affinity for me here because as a, I, I was also a chorister as a, as a child and uh, uh, what an introduction to professional music that is. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be a chorister in Oxford at New College um, and I was there for a, well, I had a particularly interesting experience really I guess um, in that when I started um, there the, the organist and choirmaster was um, David Lumsden and uh, then a little later on, so, um, it was Edward Higginbottom, um, and uh, the two great and extremely different sorts of musicians, um, um, and moved from very much from an, under um, Lumsden a sort of this emphasis on, um, particularly Bird actually, and Talis and the and the English Renaissance great composers, um, of course not exclusively, um, and uh, and a sort of reliance as well on. I suppose there's an awful lot of the late 19th century English stuff as well, the Stamfords and Parrys and, and so on. Plenty of 20th, 20th century stuff too, and music even as far back as Dunstable, would you believe? So 15th century um, polyphony. So it was a, it was a it was an amazing diet of, of for a, for a, a lad of eight um, <laughs> of music. And, uh, you know, and uh, and then Higginbottom came in, and uh, and all of a sudden we were introduced to French baroque repertoire. Um, so I mean, it was another. It's totally outside my sphere. I mean, we'd done music from England to the period. We used to do Purcell and Daniel Purcell and, uh, and bits of bits and bobs of uh, of other music of the period. But uh, wow, talk about covering pretty much everything. It was so, so cool. So Matthew Locke, I was intrigued. I mean, I've obviously gone for him the, the connection no more than the man's surname <laughs> in terms of. Life. I've got to give you a birth to this because it's such fantastic music, and uh, this is a this is a tiny little piece called um, the Tempest, and it's a it's a galliard, so um, a dance of these sixteenth um, and seventeenth centuries. Good yeah, yeah. I uh, I almost picked um, Locke just because he wrote the um, the anthem how uh, how doth the, what is it how the city doth sit solitary or something like that, and I think it was I'm not sure if he was there but I think it was in reference to the siege of York when um, the city was essentially locked down and that's another interesting reference there but. Um, yeah, it's wonderful music, isn't it? And um, mm. and not not really very well known actually at all, is it? Um, his music and um, well, the music mm. of that whole period, quite frankly, apart from um, Purcell's, apart from Purcell. not yet, 
bluntly. Yeah, not greatly explored. And um, again, it's another the the the, the, re the reference to lockdown is slightly tenuous in that obviously it's the surname of the man of the next uh, the man uh, who, who composed the next piece, John Cage. Ah uh, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so you see, we can't really have lockdown without mentioning John Cage, and, uh, um, and perhaps this particular piece that I've chosen isn't the best radio piece, actually, um, or broadcast <laughs> piece. Uh, yeah, well, especially radio. Because, but I thought as an exploration of silence and the um, and the impossibility of experiencing um, on this planet, at any rate, um, perhaps with the exception of those who are profoundly deaf might be a way of reflecting on the loneliness experienced by many people during these long quiet months. So what I want you to listen to um, in this this piece, it's his most famous composition um, entitled Four Minutes 33 Seconds. I want you to listen, if that's not a completely mad thing to say, um, to the way that Cage manages to link all the thematic material in what is probably the most homogeneous work ever composed. So this is an excerpt um, uh, from the uh, first movement in cages, four minutes and 33 seconds. that's just up to the end of the second subject of the first movement. <laughs> it's interesting actually people always um you kind of assume silence because it's the absence of something doesn't really have any effect but i always find it um you know when you really sit and concentrate on it it's quite sort of almost i, I find it almost sort of anxiety inducing sometimes it's like <laughs> when you realize how big everything around you is it sort of feels like you're being pressed down somehow by by the absence of sound i don't know it's it sounds a bit pretentious but it does have that effect on me when you're actually sat down and forced to listen to silence you, it does really have a quite big emotional impact on you doesn't it if you, you can either get kind of the anxiety of everything that's around you or you are kind of just kind of it's almost like you've been hypnotized and you've just been in, entranced by this kind of comfort around you, which is just complete tranquility. And you you start off concentrating, completely concentrating on every single little drop or like pin dropping around you. And then a few minutes, well, you know, maybe a minute into it, you're just kind of just alone with your thoughts. And it's actually quite comforting. A good I was going to say, I like how my anxiety is your... Uh... <laughs> your comfort I guess the thing that's because it's silence is so um like unanimous it can almost have a different effect on everybody 
Absolutely. Well, a different effect on how you're feeling that day, you know, you know, how your life's yeah. going at that time. It's going to be different every time you listen to it. And that's, I guess, the genius of it. I mean, people make fun of this piece and, you know, you can kind of understand that. But it, the sentiment really... But it's not often in a concert hall you'd sit down and just properly listen to everything that's going on. Like, no. There isn't another piece that would make you do that in the same way. So. It's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, apparently he... You know, he felt that, uh, and, and it's a re I think an increasingly relevant period, a uh, piece for us in, in the period that we live in, because we live in a most unbelievably noisy world. It's noisier than it's ever, ever been, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so moments of peace and tranquility are amazingly rare. You know, perhaps one thing in common I have with Beethoven, apart from being a musician and a pianist, is... Uh, if I may be so very bold, um, to make any sort of comparison, it's the fact that I love going out and hearing the birds sing. It's just mm, yeah. great. It's magic, you know, and um, and uh, so... It's like it's so busy and fast-paced now that yeah, a, piece, yeah. a piece like this reminds people to just have the patience as well, to sit down yeah. and, and concentrate on something that actually isn't actually... Yeah, yeah, exactly, changing. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think and I think Cage's whole point was actually, even if you go into a padded room, a completely silent cell that's padded to remove all extraneous noise, you still don't have silence because no. all of a sudden you can hear you can hear your your blood pumping around your heartbeat. So yeah. It is impossible to be truly silent. And the closest I've got to um, experiencing that was um, uh, in the desert in uh, in the middle of a, a desert in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, not Saudi, sorry, in, in Oman, um, where it was utterly silent, except for the sound, slight sound of wind, rustling, um, rustling's the wrong word, there were no trees, um, I don't know what you say. Whistling, maybe? Yeah, whistling, quite, just slightly whistling, and, and the sound of my own heartbeat. And it was loud. Silence is loud. Weird. Yeah. So I wanted to be a bit controversial and look at a couple of little pieces by non-classical musicians. And I found a couple that, um, well, one that certainly considerably predates me. And of course, it's by um, Elvis, Elvis Presley, yeah. who some people call the great Elvis Presley. Um, uh, and of course, it's Jailhouse Rock. Um, and the lockdown thing is... Um, well, his fairly uh, references, inferences is pretty obvious here, really. And jailhouse rock, well, this is how it goes. I want to see what people think. And anyway, I reckon this is, it's built to make you feel good, this music. Um, yeah. Just yeah. as The Tempest is, um, The Galliard from The Tempest by Matthew Locke. This is proper dance music. It should make you want to move.
cool. <laughs> it's got to make you smile, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Definitely. It really does. Yeah, and finally, um, my last little bit is, is a piece called Locked Down. And oh. it's by um, a fellow called John, PhD, um, usually better known as Dr. John. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys know this fella um, or anything of it. He died last year. Uh, he was um, uh, born in New Orleans and um, a, you know, interesting musician. His music kind of links together Oh, God, all sorts of styles, as you might imagine, coming from New Orleans. Um, it's a sort of mashup of um, funk, blues, boogie-woogie, jazz, all sorts of stuff. And uh, I'm only including it because it's called lockdown. <laughs> That's good enough for me. If it's good enough link for us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear a bit of it? Definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is locked down. you want um yes okay so uh i'm sort of taking you back further than i think we've ever gone on this podcast before um so i was i was reading an article by um nicholas mcgagan you know the director um he's he's an early music guy for those that, that don't know who was drawing some parallels between the current lockdown and historical lockdowns now, some of them were sort of a bit tenuous, I, I don't know. But um, one thing he was talking about was um, the several plague pandemics in Europe, was the first of which was the Justinian plague, and the second plague pandemic, the Black Death, which I'm sure we've all heard of, which is the worst pandemic in the entire recorded human history. It struck Europe about 1348. Um and within a couple of years, really, um, it, no one's exactly sure, but a quarter to a half, something more uh, of the entire population of Europe was killed. You know, realistically, 80 to 90 percent of people died who caught it um, and left untreated. If you contracted the bubonic plague, uh, almost all people would die within eight days, regardless of 
your age or health. Um, so, you know, uh, compare... I mean, we think things are bad now. You know, this was... If you got it, you were dead, basically. Um, and it was a horrific death. Uh, at the outbreak of 1348, the disease spread so rapidly that before um, any physicians really understood it, about a third of the population had already died. And in crowded, crowded cities like Paris, um, uh, half of the population, which then was 100,000 people, died. The composer I'm going to be talking about is um, Guillaume de, Ma de Macho. Uh, mm. who is a, yeah, there you go. Cool choice. <laughs> um, I'm very, I'm very glad you didn't pick him because I was thinking for a second that was out of luck there. But um, so born somewhere around 1300 uh, in Macho, funnily enough, um, he was uh, he was trained as a not just as a musician but as a poet, and I'm going to be going into that in a second. Uh, in 1323, he became secretary for Jean of Luxembourg. In 1330, uh, he was at Verdun Cathedral then later Arras Cathedral, and finally, uh, 1337, he became a canon at Reims Cathedral, um, which is where this journey starts. Um, so much of his poetry shows influence from Ovid, the classical poet, and in 1349, so, you know, just after the, the Black Death had begun to strike Europe, he wrote Les Jugements du Roi de Navarre, which was, is a long narrative poem in honour of Charles V. Uh, it's set out in the form of a debate. It's slightly weird because the uh, second half is the judgment, which is the debate. But the first half is an introduction, which is a very um, complete and uh, detailed description of the troubles of the time in which he lived. Um, and it begins with the fading song of birds at the end of summer and talks about the, the melancholy of autumn uh, and the cosmic disorder. So that, you know, can be uh, weather, it was social disorder, wars, familial disorder, and of course the great disorder uh, in reference to the plague, which he describes as God taking revenge by sending a, sending a pest. Um, now, uh, interestingly, a lot of people felt that death was inevitable at this time, and that's why there were some uh, sort of black death parties where people were almost just trying to enjoy the last moments of their life, accepting that um, that they hadn't got long left anyway. But Macho took a different approach. He was one of the people who avoided society completely, which allowed him to survive. Um, so essentially, but, uh, by 1340, he'd moved to Rounds, and that's where he took up isolation um, and lived his life essentially in lockdown um, for months on end. And when he finally returned to the cathedral, um, or certainly in the 1350s, he brought with him a freshly composed piece, um, a mass, the earliest mass setting, which is can be attributed to one composer. And that's the Messe de Notre Dame, the, the Mass of Our Lady, which wasn't composed for the Notre Dame, by the way. That hadn't even been finished being built yet, I don't think. But um, it was composed for Rome's Cathedral. And uh, I'm going to play you a bit of that. Now, we can't be exactly sure when it was written, but I sort of like to think that um, this was perhaps his, his isolation project. Um, and it certainly does some things which are... Uh, um, qu 
quite adventurous for the time. Um, I'll get into that in a second, but first I thought I'd read you a bit from the introduction of the judgment of King of, of the King of Navarre. For the air that had been clear and pure was now vile, black and cloudy, horrible and fetid, putrefied and infected, and so it became completely corrupted. And about this corruption, men held the view it was corrupting them in turn, and they were thus losing their health, for everyone was badly afflicted, discoloured and made ill. People had buboes and large swellings from which they died, and to be brief, few dared to venture into the open air or talk at close quarters with one another, because their infected breath corrupted others who were healthy. And if anyone fell ill and some friend visited him, that man the same peril from which 500,000 died, so that father failed son, mother failed daughter, son and daughter failed mother from fear of this plague. And no one was so true a friend that he was not thereupon ignored, the recipient of little help if he fell ill with the disease. There was no physician or healer who knew enough to name the cause of its appearance or even what it was, and none of them applied any remedy. Beyond that, this was a disease, one called an epidemic, and this is in reference to God, and in short, he undid so many, struck down and devoured so great a multitude, that every day could be found huge heaps of women, youths, boys, old people, those of all degrees lying dead inside the churches, and they were thrown together in great trenches, all dead from the buboes. Because the cemeteries were found to be so full of corpses and beers, it was necessary to lay out new ones. Sorry, that's not beers as in Harvey's type beer. That's beers as in the things you carry corpses on. Um, and then a little later in the, in the poem. And when I witnessed these events that were so strange and ominous, I was not at all so brave. I did not become quite cowardly. For all the most courageous trembled from the fear of death that overcame them. And so I quite thoroughly confessed myself of all the sins I had committed. He conveniently doesn't mention any of them. <laughs> Putting myself into a state of grace in order to accept death where I was, if it should please our Lord. Therefore, with uncertainty and fear, I closed myself up inside the house and determined resolutely in my mind I'd not leave until the time when I should learn what conclusion this might come to. And I would leave it for God to decide. And so for a long time, may God help me, there I remained, knowing little of what was happening in the city. And there were more than 20,000 died, though of this I knew nothing, and so felt less sadness. For I did not wish to know anything, so that my sorrows would be fewer, even though many of my friends had died and been put in the ground. And so I remained long in hiding, just like a hawk in a molt, until at last one time I heard, which made me greatly rejoice, bagpipes, trumpets, kettle drums, and more than seven pairs of instruments. Then I went to a window and asked what this might be. And at once one of my friends who had heard me answered that those who remained were acting just as if they were getting married, feasting and celebrating weddings, for the deadly plague of the buboes that was called an epidemic had completely seized everywhere, and people were no longer dying. And when I saw them celebrating joyfully and with good cheer, and all just as merrily as if they had lost nothing, I wasn't troubled in the least, but regained at once my composure, turning my eyes and face to the air that was so sweet and it Clear, it encouraged me then to leave the prison where I had passed the season. There you go. So a lot of things in there that we probably identify with at the moment and how apt that music is the um, music is the end to it, to the to the suffering. 
French pronunciation there. <laughs> yeah, but it's fantastic. I mean, some of the Hockett's rhythms and uh, at the end are just sort of funky, really, aren't they? <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, totally weird. And um, you know, major there are there are major seven chords in there. Surprising, a you know, striking amount of major chords as well. Which um, I mean, you do get, but not quite with the prevalence that um, they are in that piece normally. Of course, people didn't invent the term consonants anglois the english style until dunstable who you were talking about earlier which was quite a bit later so <laughs> that opening onto the major chord on on jesus christ you know jesus christ it's quite striking i think it's in such absolutely magic yeah magical so, uh, i mean there you go talk about uh, you know that what you were saying earlier and and how that that music reflects as messians did the faith of the man and um, and how important that was to him and you know, kept him going through that lockdown, and um, whether it's self-imposed or not. What a, I mean, what an insight he had, eh? To absolutely, lock himself yeah. Down. I mean, probably more than <clears throat> we ever will, I think. Hopefully, <laughs> and uh, I think that's his only surviving setting of the mass. Um, so I suppose for him, perhaps it it was knowing that he was there with that much time, and in that deep thought that it probably would be his his magnum opus in a way. Um, <clears throat> All right. Well, I've I've gone for something fairly sentimental and hard on sleeve as I normally do with these podcasts. Um, it's a piece I'm sure that we all know and love very dearly, but I'm I'm just kind of excited to have the opportunity to talk about it in this this respect. Okay, I was torn choosing a piece for this word. It certainly crossed my mind to choose something really dark and dejected, as I know we have all been feeling for close to a year now such as The Haunting Coptic Light by Feldman, which I kind of see as a musical Groundhog Day, being stuck in the same eerily unsettling landscape for the whole piece. It also crossed my mind to pick something that has kept me optimistic throughout the whole of lockdown, which for me has been very much Schumann's third symphony with its buoyant joy and driven determination. But in the end, I decided to go for a piece that kind of joins the two opposite sides of the spectrum together. And for that reason, I've chosen Vaughan Williams' Fifth Symphony, 
And the reason in particular is that this was the piece that the London Symphony Orchestra performed with Sir Simon Rattle at the BBC Proms over the summer, all distanced across the stage, performing to an empty hall. To be honest, it was without doubt the listening experience that moved me most over the entire of 2020, and one of the times I felt most grateful for this achingly beautiful music as well in my whole entire life. As I, alongside many other listeners, felt that Rattle and the LSO had picked exactly the right piece to echo the sentiments of our times, what we are living through right now, and indeed what we are having to live without. And today, I'm just glad to have the opportunity to be able to share my thoughts on why that is. To start, I just want to play you a very quick extract from the close of Vaughan Williams's Fourth Symphony. This symphony was premiered in 1935, which was three years before Von Williams started the fifth, which was premiered in 1943. So it could be surprising that the impact of the Second World War didn't provoke an equally turbulent symphony. But in fact, it brought out the complete opposite, a piece that was designed to be beautiful and is widely acknowledged to contain some of the most agonisingly stunning and blissful music of the 20th century. Vaughan Williams insisted of the symphony that it was pure, absolute music, but it's only natural to lean towards seeing the work as a celebration of what remains beautiful about the world in a time of crisis. And as I hope the extract I'm about to play will demonstrate, it is music that is both humble yet noble, with a balance between serenity and unwavering hope. For us musicians, Rattle's choice of the symphony really seemed to be a statement and what we needed to hear. As you can see the tone as mourning, and indeed a lament for what we miss most in our lives, but seeing how the beauty of this music still radiated through the realms of the empty Royal Albert Hall, where the work was premiered under the composer's own baton nearly 80 years earlier, just seemed to speak volumes of hope. How the music is still very much there, consoling us, speaking of brighter times, and awaiting patiently for when we can return to devoting our lives to performing it. It's always been a very special piece, but that extra heart-rending element, hearing its glorious song for hope during a period of such difficulty for the world we live in, just made it almost overwhelmingly moving. At the time of its premiere, critics rated the symphony that it contains the most benedictory and consoling music of our time. And it really is poignant that here in 2020, for those who watched this concert, that sentiment still very, very much stands. It is a piece that, whatever conflict or struggle surrounds it, simply sings of hopeful return to a more peaceful time and celebrates the purity of the beauty that we should never take for granted again, now having to have so much time away from it.
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and having having heard the recent news about uh, our Simon, perhaps even more poignant. Sad yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I just, I know, not necessarily intentional, but seeing those shots of empty concert halls has mm. just, um, you know, hits, hits home. It's, all, it's all what we all love doing, moment. it's what we all live for. And to see the empty concert halls just just heartbreaking. Yeah. But then to see a performance like that with so much meaning I mean it just speaks so much to hope. The, to the yeah. industry, yeah. It, it shows that it, we still have it and it's still going to be there. Um beauty, the beauty of music will always be there, however long we're in lockdowns. But uh, yeah, very moving. Very moving. Well, I mean the the it, it's amazing, isn't it, Tommy? But those those two pieces. It's funny. There's lots of connections with the with VW5 for me. For starters, that particular wonderful performance was um, conducted, as you can see there, Sir Simon Rattle. And, um, and the the slight connection with me is that my father taught him the violin when he was a boy. Oh wow! Uh, wow. <laughs> and a further. And a further further connection is that um, Principal Horn in that very performance was my brother Lawrence. No way! So, wow! Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So it is yeah. a small world, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Well, it is for me anyway. <laughs> and um, and the other connection is that the guy that I'm studying, Arnold Cook, and whose music I've been recording and working on, um, he was I know that he went to the first performance of that symphony hmm. um, and wow. uh, so there's lots of connections there and, uh, and Cook, uh, Cook there's a wonderful comment he makes about it oh you know it's the usual VW stuff also severely diatonic <laughs> <laughs> it's true but uh, great not comment. always a bad thing <laughs> great comment but yeah yeah and the Masho well of course, that connects with my own sort of choral roots, you know. So for me, uh, oh my goodness me, it's a, it's a it's a really tough one to pick. And do you know because of that, and all those connections, and I love that music, the Masho as well. Um, you know, I'm going to do the wrong thing here. I'm going to give you half a point each. I can't let it. Oh, you know, that's, that's never happened that's before. I, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. I think in this case, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll take that. Plenty, yeah. Plenty of reasons. Thank you very much, Harvey. What's the your favourite concert venue that you've played in, if you have one? It's wonderful to be and you know part of great big performances of, of barnstorming works with hundreds of people on the stage and so on and so forth. But actually, you know, the closest thing to my heart is always is chamber music, really, and that could be vocal chamber music. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm an instrumentalist, but um, uh, primarily, but. Uh, do 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 a bit of singing young oh my gosh i've confessed it there we go um <laughs> and uh, so I'm so i love you. private small private small intimate venues i like actually making music in somebody's front room quite honestly it's as special that's as anything nice absolutely yeah. yeah very intimate that's a wonderful answer what is the most satisfying piano accompaniment you've played we previously asked people what's the most fiendish accompaniment you've played but we kind of interested which one is most fulfilling to play. Yeah, well, to play, yeah. Let, can I can I change it to just piano? Can, can we say piano part in a yeah. piece of chamber yeah. music? Yeah. Beethoven, Archduke trio. 
pretty hard to beat. Immensely satisfying to play any middle or late period Beethoven particularly. I mean, it's pretty much where sort of music stops and starts. It's got everything. If you weren't um, sort of working or practising um, for any reason, what, what would you play for fun? What's kind of your music that you just pick up and play uh, in your spare time? I know for our listeners, or your listeners rather, we, we they can't see the video of this, but behind me is a selection of loads of volumes of, of old 19th century music um, by people that most folks have never heard of. <laughs> and uh, I love to get those volumes down, play through it, see what what um, sort of what was the pop music of the 1820s, the 1830s. That's pretty cool. Um, oh, I love exploring music that nobody else knows. Um, and um, um, I, I play anything. I mean, I, I just love all music, really. There's not much I don't like. So, to, And I do play a lot for my own amusement at home. Actually, I have to say, hardly a day goes by. Um, uh, I mean, for my own personal benefit, I'll tell you, during lockdown, I've been studying the Goldberg Variations um, and... Uh, Schumann, big um, work to Schumann, the fantasy and yeah. the um, symphonic variations as well. Oh, fantastic, so, great. Yeah. Uh, my next question is, what is your favourite thing about Manchester? Okay, that's an easy one. Um, I love the fact that we've got such a huge, well, I say we have, we normally have such a massive range of music going on here and that this city is switched on to music at the moment. Um, you know, with all with with two fantastic symphony orchestras, world class symphony orchestras here, um, an international conservatoire, um, a couple of chamber music, some seriously forward thinking chamber groups. Uh, I'm including just a collective. I'm in, um, and uh, we've now you know, got a baroque period instrument group, which is just making its early um, sort of forays into the world of performing. And uh, um, you know, and I. I been blessed and privileged to be supported in the work I do with my own player ensemble. So there's everything, and there's and there's also contemporary music. There's a, a, a fantastic pop and rock scene. Um, so that's my favourite thing about Manchester. Uh, this is a, a, a slightly different one, but if you could go back and study a different subject other than music, what do you think you would you would pick? Is there something sort of nagging at you that you, you wished you'd studied? Mm-hmm. I have a huge passion for um, lots and lots of branches of science, actually, and um, I, I read widely about them. And I've always loved chemistry and astronomy as well, and uh, and indeed life sciences too. So, um, in fact, I even had a place, just in case I didn't get into music college, I had a place to do, well, it was quite weird, actually. I had a place to call a scholar at Cambridge or... A play, or a place to do marine zoology at Bangor University. Oh, in wow. wow. But I got oh, into music college and went there. Which is your favourite classic British comedy show? Something with Ronnie Barker in it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I mean, he's yeah. my my go-to funniest. Uh, or if we're including um, if we're including radio, then um, probably some probably the goons. But. Um, the Goon Show, but uh, yeah, something with Ronnie Barker in for television. Genius of a man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a great answer. Uh, describe yourself in one word. I hope this is true. Improving. <laughs> ah, 
Um, if you could pick one musician, dead or alive, that everyone should be raving about, but currently isn't, who would that be? It's got to be too easy, really, for me, this one again. Um, um, it has to be Arnold Cook, who I'm studying at the moment. <laughs> I um, thought you'd say that. <laughs> there's such a wealth of music um, in all genres, uh, six symphonies, um, five string quartets, um, oratorios, you name it. Shed balls of chamber music, um, which is really, really interesting and varied, and uh, um, and uh, yeah, it's worthy of worthy of playing and studying and listening to. It's cool stuff. Yeah. Because uh, am I right in thinking you uh, did a lot of work on the Sixth Symphony, which has been recently performed? Yeah, is that right? the, the, that's right. The Sixth Symphony hadn't um, it hadn't ever been done, and um, in two thousand and fifteen, I made it was in still in manuscript and, in, and I made uh, made the first edition of, of the piece and uh, took it to the BBC Phil and um, and Mike George took it straight away and they and they brought uh, gave it its first performance and broadcast and I gave the pre-concert talk and um, all that kind of thing. It was, it was really cool. It was a great way to start my PhD studies into Cork. Thank you thank ever you. so much, Harvey, yeah, for coming brilliant. on. It's been so interesting yeah, talking wonderful. to you and yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for a half point each as well. I'm very happy with that. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. History of the podcast. But yeah, thank you so much. And oh, yeah. it's a total pleasure. And 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 um, and you know, both of you, I think you're doing a really, really interesting and um, fascinating thing here. And uh, it's great to get us, keep us all thinking about music in in all sorts of ways, and and hearing what everybody else loves. It's good on you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. And so yeah, I cannot wait to see you perform the Schumann Fantasy. That is coming up. <laughs> looking forward to it. <laughs> Great. So thank you for joining us on another episode of the Nobel Peace Prize. Come back next week when we'll be talking to fantastic conductor Alex McKinder about music that we think is euphoric. Here we go. This is uh, Matthew Locke. Or is it? It's not happening. What's going on? Oh, I forgot to. I forgot to. <laughs> hold on. I forgot to unmute it. It sounded more like your next choice, Harvey. Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> <didn't> it? <laughs>